Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Our text today, the last uh, verse from the uh, gospel lesson, I'd like to ask you to read that with me. So if you would take out the uh, service folder on page four is the sermon outline and the text is printed there. And then, of course, if you keep that in hand during the message, that can be helpful for following along. Together we read, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is our text. Today is our last in a short sermon series, three weeks, looking at some of the parables of Jesus. And and each of those Sundays, we've been asking the same question, and that is, who is this Jesus? That's the most important question there is. That's the question that everybody needs to answer. And we've uncovered various facets of of that answer each week, a different one. The first week when we talked about the parable of the lost sheep, The answer to the question, who is Jesus, was he's the one who brings us joy. Last week with the parable of the dishonest manager, who is Jesus? He's the one in whom we can place our trust. And with today's parable, well, that's what we're going to be working towards by the end of the sermon. We're going to start now with making a few comments about the parable. Just kind of go right down the list there in your your sermon outline. First, uh, reminding ourselves that it was addressed to the Pharisees, whom Luke describes as lovers of money. And you heard what St. Paul said about that in the epistle lesson today, that, uh, that those who are, love money are in for all kinds of evil. The love of money is the root of, of all kinds of evils. Amos, that's what he was talking about as well, Pastor Amos addressing his congregation in Israel and focusing at least a good part of his sermon on on the wealthy in Israel because they were were cheating the poor and were storing up uh, just for their own use, their wealth, just like the Pharisees. And like the rich man in uh, Jesus' parable. His lifestyle was lavish, beyond belief, ostentatious. He was, he was very showy. He wore purple, which was uh, not worn in those days. It was so expensive. The dye to make purple cloth was, was very rare and very expensive. And he feasted sumptuously. How often? Every day. Well, that kind of feasting in those days was reserved for maybe some religious holidays or maybe a a wedding or maybe a 50th wedding anniversary or or a 90th birthday or, or some very special event like that, not every day. The other side of that coin was the rich man's callousness was extreme beyond Belief. He was so focused on his own pleasure that he didn't notice the, the misery that was all around him and, and was right in front of him in the person of Lazarus. Lazarus, just note this now, we'll come back to it later. The name Lazarus means he whom God helps. 
And then we sum up the last three points in, in the first portion of the sermon outline just with the, with the one point. I wanted to get it all on, on, one, uh, on one screen for the PowerPoint. But we'll look at what the sermon outline says. The rich man was in Hades not because he was rich. It's pretty important to know, right? Because otherwise we're all in trouble because by any standards, we are all very, very rich. So the rich man was in Hades not because he was rich, but because he was callous. And his callousness was proof positive of a lack of faith on his part. And of course, it is faith alone, God's grace received through faith in Jesus, that says, which is also why uh, we say the poor man was in heaven, not because he was poor, but by God's grace. And the last point there is this is not meant to be a glimpse of heaven. Jesus isn't giving us a, a preview of what heaven and hell are going to be like. That's, that wasn't the point of the parable. The point of the parable is our text for today. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. You know, you'd think that would do it, wouldn't you? Somebody comes back from the dead, wouldn't that get some attention? It would certainly seem as if, if, if anybody was going to be convinced, if doubters were going to be persuaded, Seeing someone who had been dead now walking around would do it. But Jesus knew that some people just won't be convinced. The Pharisees to whom this parable was addressed were in that group. They had all of the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah, and that's what he was referenced with. Uh, if, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, Moses wrote the first five books of the, of the Old Testament, the prophets wrote the rest, and of course, that's all they had at the time of Jesus. So, so we could say, if they don't hear the Bible, well, then they're not going to be convinced, even if someone should rise from the dead. The Pharisees had all the Old Testament prophecies of the, the coming Messiah. Now they had the Messiah himself standing right in front of them. And they would not accept Jesus as the Messiah. That was true while he, while he preached among them, while he worked miraculous deeds. It was also true when Jesus had risen from the dead. They just wouldn't be convinced. Well, the Pharisees are all gone. So does that mean that this parable is of interest only from, a, from an historical perspective? No, I don't think so. I think it has a lot to say to us today as well, and that's why we've, we've titled the sermon, borrowing the word that, that Jesus used in the parable, titled the sermon, What Does It Take to Convince You? The problem is that there are so many different voices vying for our attention, trying to convince us of their truth, saying, listen to me, not to them. It's gotten to the point where in our country we really just don't know who to believe. Recent polls uh, that have been taken demonstrate this. Uh, who is trustworthy? Well, apparently neither one of our uh, presidential candidates uh, get the nod. 
Nor does the media. You see, the trustworthiness in, in, the, in the eyes of the United States public can, continues to trend downward. Well, maybe such a, such a venerable occupation as being pastor. That'll do it, won't it? Yeah, you know, that isn't faring so well either. A little better than the media, but, but not all that much. We do learn that uh, people trust their spouses. That's a good thing, isn't it? That's the one that's farthest to the right there in the, in the red. And they trust their best friends, and they trust their doctors. And, and third on the list, your pastors do a little better in this survey. Third on the list is their personal pastor or, or a religious leader, and, and then it goes from there. So we don't really know who to trust. Do we know what to trust? Can we trust the Bible? Uh, this is kind of complicated. I'm not going to go into detail on that. It depends how the question is asked and so forth. But, but there, too, we see the, the trend isn't really all that good. People really just don't know who or what to trust. And we'd like to say that we're not in that category that we trust completely everything that God tells us in his word. But, but aren't there some things in there that take a little convincing? And the Bible talks about God creating the heavens and the earth in six days. And, and, and then we get into high school and we get into college where we watch the, uh, the shows on, on TV. And, and we learn, well, that's not true. You know, it took billions of years. What are you going to believe? Or we read in the Bible that, that sexual relations are to be limited to and enjoyed within the marriage relationship. And we, we look around us or we look inside us and we say, well, I don't know about that. That's so hard. Or we read Jesus' own words about himself, that, that he's the only way to heaven. And Well, that, that sure doesn't seem very inclusive. And, and we struggle with some of that. And yet we recall Jesus' words put in the mouth of Abraham in the, in the parable, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, if they don't hear the Bible, neither will, they, neither will we be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And that really comes out in the, in the parable too. It includes some truths that, that maybe take a little bit of convincing uh, before we're going to accept them. For instance, and now this is the second part of the, para, or the, of, of the sermon outline. What does it take to convince you that pleasure isn't the highest good? Every commercial you see tells you that it is. It's how they get you to buy their product. Of course, we don't need commercials for that, do we? They didn't have TV in, in Jesus' day. And the rich man still acted as if pleasure was the highest good. Well, we like our pleasure too. We like luxury. We like nice clothes and, and fine food. Does that mean that pleasure isn't ever good? I didn't say that. What I am saying is that pleasure isn't ever the highest good. And too often we act as if it is as if we are not convinced that it isn't. And, and maybe that seems to be especially true when we experience the opposite of pleasure, which is pain, discomfort or loss, sorrow. 
And at such times, maybe we need to be convinced, this is the next point, what does it take to convince you that, that God isn't angry with you in such times, or, or just callous, insensitive toward your situation? The name Lazarus means what? He whom God helps. Oh, really? How much help was God providing Lazarus as, as he laid at the, the rich man's gate? Apparently, not too much. And sometimes we can feel that way when we're in the midst of, of whatever, and there's so many possibilities here, when we're in the midst of, of whatever is, is dragging us down. Sometimes we can't help but wonder, what did I do, God? Are, are you angry with me? Or, or what's wrong with you, God? Why aren't you rescuing me from whatever this situation is. So what does it take to convince you that God isn't angry with you or, or callous toward you, but instead is the one who helps you? Not who could help or, or might help, but will help and does help. You know, that could be... Uh, uh, an answer to the question, who is this Jesus? Well, the one who helps us. That's not the one that goes in the, the fill in the blank at the bottom of the outline. It, it's too big uh, to fit in there. We'll give you a different one. Jesus is the, the one who brings us joy, the one in whom we can place our trust, and also the one who helps us. And he provides help sometimes in ways that, that we don't ask for, sometimes in ways that we're not even aware of. And it can be kind of hard to convince us that he's helping us when we, when we don't see that help. And yet that's always the promise. That's always the assurance. That he will help us in this life. And, especially as he did for Lazarus, taking us to the life which is yet to come. The next point says, what does it take to convince you that God wants you to help others. Sometimes he uses his people to, to provide the help that, that he wants to give. He wants us to help others, not to be callous towards their needs. Now this is kind of a tough one, but I'm going to ask you to think about it seriously. Are we ever more like that rich man than than we maybe thought of before or, or, or want to think about now? Do we grow so accustomed to our luxurious, and it is, to our luxurious lifestyle that we just take it for granted or, or maybe even seems like we're entitled to it? Does our enjoyment of, of life get in the way of our helping others? Or maybe the, uh, the overwhelming needs out there are, are what does that. Because I can't help everybody, maybe I won't help anybody. I don't know where to begin. Now maybe that was the case with the rich man in the parable, I don't know. I mean, in spite of all of his riches, there's no way he could have taken care of everybody in the world, not even everybody in the, in the nation of Israel. But who could he have helped? The person who was right in front of him. 
who he would have had to practically step over every day in order to, to do his feasting. Well, whom does God put in our way? Who does, whom does God put, put right in front of us? Maybe literally. Or maybe more figuratively as, as, as something that's, that's on our hearts that, that God places there and, and yet sometimes we manage to step right over them. What does it take to convince you that God wants you to help others? Now we're going to shift gears because so far we've been, we've been talking about this present life and that's what we're involved in so we should be talking about that but what do we also need to remind ourselves of of that there's so much more to life than this life and that well as we say what does it take to convince you that the hereafter is better than the here and now which in a way takes us all the way back to the to the first point in that that pleasure isn't the highest good it, it can't be the highest good not because it's sinful it isn't always sinful but because it's so short-lived it, it it can't live any longer than we do plus when you think about heaven please understand this heaven is not about pleasure this is sometimes how we picture it heaven is not about pleasure it's about presence about being blissfully and eternally in the presence of God. So what does it take to convince you? How about, not if someone should rise from the dead, but if that person first went willingly to his death on your behalf? Which should mean that the question, what does it take to convince you, isn't really the right question. The better question is, whom does it take to convince you? Which then takes us back to our main question, who is Jesus? And from today's parable, we can give this answer. He's the one who not only rose from the dead, but first went willingly to his death on my behalf. That's not going to fit in those blanks either. So how about if we shorten it and sum up everything that we've said the last three weeks? Who is this Jesus? My Savior. I'm convinced. Are you?